Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. This is a show exploring the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors. If you're joining for the first time, welcome. Here I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about the way that the outdoors transform them, their most vivid experiences, and how themes like risk, fear, flow, awe, and deeper connection show up in their relationship to the outdoors. And today I speak with John Turk. John is a seasoned adventurer, a veteran of the outdoors who's now in his 70s. If you're in British Columbia and read the magazine Mountain Life, you'll probably recognize his regular column where he reflects on many of the adventures in his life, intertwining many of the themes that this podcast was created to explore. John has lived to tell the tale of many a back-breaking, hair-raising adventures, including having his kayak destroyed and shoulder dislocated off the coast of Cape Horn near Antarctica, getting medevaced off Alasmere Island up in the Arctic after 105 days circumnavigating it, getting lost at sea, paddling in the Pacific and tracking lines in Kenya. John has lived a true life of adventure, but also unfurled the wisdom from every one of these. And we explore that in this conversation. We explore the art of testing the limits of endurance and the blissful transcendent state that comes and can only really be accessed when you enter the pain cave and mine the depths of what you're capable of. In fact, there's a quote from John's most recent book that I I read in this conversation, but I'm going to read it here as well because it so eloquently speaks to the peak state of transcendence that you can access from having the courage to enter the unknown limits of your own endurance. It goes, To enter the blissful state that is beyond willpower, where you are just existing, waiting or charging forth as conditions allow, in the flow, where the pain dissipates, where reality dissipates. But it doesn't, it just changes. And if indeed there is a place beyond willpower, where pain stops, and the glory is that the secret valley is guarded by pain itself, the gnarly old trickster troll under the bridge with a wry smile, a peaked, rumpled green hat, dirty underwear and rotten teeth. So you must endure, or cross over, or worm your way through, or suffer through pain before you no longer need to endure anymore because the pain evaporates into something that we don't have a word for in the English language. Perhaps because it is not a sufficiently significant part of our heritage. It's that rare state of consciousness, that elusive state of consciousness that motivates people to test these limits. And we speak about that as well as a bunch of other really interesting topics. John shares a synchronicious story of an unexpected storm while paddling off the coast of Siberia that led him to a shaman that already knew his name and claimed to have created the storm just to usher him to the land, which kicked off a five-year journey into the metaphysical depths of the human condition, including the healing of a chronic hip injury. John goes into detail of all that stuff and how it blew open his worldview. We talk about the stillness that can be achieved in the outdoors, about finding right relationship with fear, managing our relation, comfort and luxury and a bunch of other really interesting stuff. Here's the conversation. (laughs) 
John, welcome to Mountain Whispers. Well, it's great to see you, Tim. Pleasure to be here. So, John, the reason I, I reached out to you was not just that you're an accomplished athlete and adventurer, but you also have the talent of putting the depth of your experience into to words and exploring how what you've experienced as an adventurer relates to the human condition or, or human nature. So I'm really excited to go down a bunch of different rabbit holes with you. Perhaps a good place to start would be, would love to hear a little bit more about how you first got into mountain culture or, or when the mountains first started calling to you. Uh, yeah. From the very beginning, Tim, when I was Before I remember, my mother tells me this story. When I first learned to walk, we lived in Brooklyn in New York City, a borough of New York City. And apparently, I don't remember this, I used to run away all the time and run down the block. And there was an empty lot with tall grass and the grasses were above my head. I was one 14 months old or something. And my mother would see the grasses moving. And that would be me running through the tall grasses. So I don't remember this. My mother tells me this, but uh, it's deep in my DNA. I think it's deep in everybody's DNA. It was just stronger in mine. And then, oh, blah, 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 blah. I went to school. I went to graduate school. I went to high school with George W. Bush. I got a PhD in chemistry. And then one day... I was, while I was doing my graduate work, I was up in the mountains outside of Boulder, Colorado, and it was spring, and the snow had just melted, and the spring flowers were just coming out, and everything was greening up, and my dogs started running around this meadow and digging holes and sniffing the earth and getting really excited and digging more holes. And I watched the dog and the total joy in that dog. And I started stuff, stuffing my face in the holes that the dog had smelled and, and smelling the earth and getting mud in my face and smelling springtime and having the change of seasons become part of me. And then at that point, I realized that I couldn't spend my life in the chemistry lab and my life was changed from then on. And. From there, what got you into kind of expeditionary travel and, and larger scale adventures? Yeah, I don't know if I could answer that question. I went to Telluride and I became a ski bum. And then I just wanted to be as immersed as possible in the wilderness. And if you go skiing, at a ski area or even backcountry skiing and you come home at night, you re-enter the world of square walls. If you don't re-enter the square walls day after day, something changes. And inherently, I knew that, that the world of square walls and comforts and stoves and dishwashers and all that, it's every form of refuge has its price. It takes something away from you. And deep inside me, inherently, I knew I wanted to be exposed out there on my own. And the only way to do that is to go on expeditions. So I became an expedition person. I'm glad you make that point about the four walls, because that's something I, I think about a lot is there's a common misconception that us humans are now 
civilized and removed from kind of our paleolithic hardwiring. And my experience and, and many of my peer experiences, it just takes four, five, six days in consistent nature where you feel our DNA and wiring flooding back that we're just conditioned for civilization, for the four walls, for kind of binary, rational, input-output widget thinking. And it just requires a few days immersed in nature with the sounds, smells, tastes for for it all to start flooding back. Yeah, a few days is great and a few months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't say I've experienced a couple of months, but I would absolutely love to. And uh, So I'm curious about the first big expedition you did. And, and I want to preface it with something that I think about a lot when exploring the transformative potential of adventure is experiences that are outside of our prior experience, but within the limits of our capability. So it's the unknown. We're not sure if we're capable of it. And it's in these experiences that we find out what we're truly capable of. What was the, the first longer expedition or trip you did where you weren't sure if you actually could finish it? Well, there were a lot of first expeditions, but when I got my PhD, I, um, it was like a very intense, I mean, I was an instrument chemist and I worked in the basement from 10 at night to five in the morning was my instrument time. And then I could catch a cup of coffee and go to class for my eight o'clock class. And I knew I was done with that, but I decided to finish up. When I went in for my final oral exam, I had my car parked outside the building, canoe lashed on top. I walked out. They all shook my hand, said, congratulations, doctor. I grabbed my diploma. I shoved it in the glove box of a 1964 Ford Fairlane, and I drove north to put my canoe in the waters and to go somewhere. And we went down the Mackenzie, and then uh, me, I hooked up with a friend, and then dragged our boats over the mountains into the Yukon. And uh, that was the first. And I had trouble on that trip with the solitude, with the doing nothing. Doing nothing is, you know, people go to prison and they where they do nothing. People pay tens of thousands of dollars to gurus to learn how to do nothing. Doing nothing is a special thing. (laughs) And it was like, it was three weeks or a month before I realized what doing nothing was. And then all of a sudden, from being this burden, oh, I have nothing to do. I have nothing to think about. I'm just floating down this big river. Oh, this is boring. But it wasn't boring. But all of a sudden, after about three weeks, I pushed through that barrier, and that's all I wanted to do for the rest of my life. My wife says says something when she's really happy. She says, I have nothing to do, nowhere to go. But there's, there's something to that as well, because would you distinguish doing nothing? So, for example, establishing a base camp in the middle of nowhere and literally just doing nothing versus doing nothing but a specific objective, such as paddling down a river. Right. You're getting to the point, right? Boom. Yeah. 
paddle paddling most expeditions have a lot of you're doing something but you're it's repetitive and uh, you don't have a lot of quick moving stimulus but here's the thing the people who are alive today who are expedition people are the people who while they were doing nothing were alert and so their brains were open and they were catching every nuance of what's going on and so i say doing nothing kind of casually but what you're doing is opening up closing off the 21st century and opening up to your paleolithic self now i'm going to give you an example we're going to jump around here a little bit um, when i was in the solomon islands doing a uh, solo long solo sea kayak trip in the south pacific i i had two i was often out of sight of land in my kayak and in the big powerful winds and currents of the trade winds so you couldn't go back you couldn't turn around you had to move in a certain direction or you'd miss the next island you're dead so i had two gps's to help me navigate and uh, one was the one that i carried with me all the time and one was hidden in the boat somewhere so i stayed at this village and i would leave around midnight so i i'd memorize the surf the break so i could go out in the dark but when i landed on the next island i there's an unknown island and coming in the surf break in an unknown island i wanted to be able to see so i planned to leave at midnight go through the night and make my landing in the day in the daylight so i i stayed at these people's house I slept with my GPS under my pillow because it's the most valuable thing you own. Dragged my boat down to the water, walked into the jungle to take a pee, got in the boat, paddled through the surf, grabbed my bag with my GPS, it was gone. When I had gone into the jungle to pee, somebody had stolen it. I'm going, okay, I'm in the trade winds now. I'm moving downstream. I can't go back to the island. Okay, I have a backup redundancy so i reach under the kayak under the cockpit and i have this little secret place and i pull out this brand new garmin i had tested it back home worked fine turned it on wouldn't wouldn't turn on gone doesn't work no gps it's dark i'm going downwind in the trade winds i'm not going to be able to see the island i know there's strong currents in here i'm being washed this way and that I have to plot a course. What's the course? 90, 110, 180, 170. I plot a course. And if I plot the wrong course, I'm dead. And all of a sudden, I go, well, first, you know, I'm annoyed. I'm angry. I'm angry at Garmin for making a faulty GPS. I'm angry at the guys who stole it. And then I'm going, this is the moment I've been preparing for all my life. All these days that I've been at sea, and I've been doing nothing, and I've been watching, the, but I've been watching the waves. I've been feeling the currents, and now I get to navigate like the old navigators, like the Melanesian and Polynesian navigators. I get to look at this wave and look at the shape of the wave and compare it with the shapes of the waves yesterday and to know which way the wind is going, 
which way the currents are going. The steepness of the wave will tell me which way the currents are going. And then I plot a course and I head to the island. So doing nothing is doing everything. It's really shutting down all the, excuse the expression, bullshit, all this stuff that goes brain through your brains and opening up to the world around you. And that's the transcendence of being an expedition person. Mm, doing nothing and doing everything. Right. <laughs> the other thing that's significant about an experience like that is dealing with the highest of consequences. I think what's unique about, or one of the more unique things about experiences like that is it gives you an opportunity to test yourself on when, when the stakes truly matter, when it does become life or death, how does your will and character hold up? And you mentioned kind of anger was something that came up in that experience where you could well get lost at sea. I'm curious how fear showed up in that experience. Yeah, fear. Well, you know, fear is okay. Fear triggers. Look, we all have fear. There's a lion in the bushes. You're getting blown out to sea. You get afraid. You're leading a sketchy climb and there's no pro and you're out there. All kinds of things. You get afraid. And fear is the trigger Fear is not the answer. Fear is the trigger to tell you, I have to go into a state of awareness. And then once you get the fear and you go, okay, thank you, fear. You have warned me that I have to go into a state of awareness. Now, you, fear, you can go out the door. Forget it. You're no longer necessary. Get out of my way because I have to be aware. And... There are many ways to express this. Imagine you're rock climbing. You're leading a sketchy pitch. Whatever it is, 5'6", five, 5'14", five, it's the limit of your ability. And you're out there, you're leading the pitch, and you're above your last piece of gear, and a fall would be nasty. So now you've got to make the next move. And this is at the outer limit of your ability. So you get afraid. But you can't move. Make the move in a state of fear. Again, you say, thank you, fear. I appreciate it. You set the alarms off. Goodbye. And now you're in a state of total motion, of total concentration, of total flow, whatever you want to call it. So the fear is a trigger. The fear is necessary. We all get afraid. But we have to learn to thank the fear, shut it off, and get to work. Yeah. And, and in fact, one of my favorite quotes for your most recent book is fear is no survival value, but every neuron filled nano increment of alertness will tweak the odds that much more in your favor. Uh, thank you for catching that. <laughs> and cause you're right. However, there is, there is considerable effort in being able to shift our relationship. Of our relationship with fear to one of alertness, you know, like it is very easy to freeze in those moments. Have you ever not been able to transmute fear into alertness? And has it ever led to you freezing in the moment where it matters most? Not that I can recall, Tim. I have, 
I'm not a very coordinated person as things go. I played sports in college, like I played lacrosse in college. And in a normal game, they played nine midfielders. I was the 10th midfielder. Somebody fouled out or got hurt or couldn't make the game I played. But, you know, I made the team. But a lot of games, I sat the whole game on the bench. So I'm not really highly coordinated. I don't ski as fast or ride my bike as fast as most people. But I'm I'm good at managing the fear. Hmm. And I'm not dead yet. So I can't ever remember freezing up. Fear is one thing. Managing risk is the other. And I think the the fact that you've made it to this age with the life that you've lived as a son, you've probably done a, a good job of, of managing risk. <laughs> How has the, your perception and management of risks changed as you've progressed through your career? Oh, wow. Just had a conversation about this. I was having dinner with Greg Child, who is a North Face Dream Team climber, a top-of-the-line Himalayan climber. He said that as you age, you still have, you still might be able to climb at the level that you are always climbed, let's say, or whatever, a 512 climber. You can still climb at that. But as you age, you lose your reserves. So if something goes wrong, it's harder to dig. And to keep that focus and keep that intensity going. So in professional ball sports, if you stay too long in the game, you might lose the Super Bowl and the newspapers say, oh, he was too old, he threw a bunch of bad passes. But if you stay too long in the adventure game, you're dead. So I really made a mistake, and I stayed too long, but not by a hair of my chinny-chin-chin. So the uh, Ellesmere Expedition, 104 days, going as hard as you can every day, low food, low water, cold, hungry. Do you want to introduce where Ellesmere Island is? Oh, Sure. Ellesmere Island is in the northeastern part of the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. It's one of the closest places, land places, to the North Pole. It's at its closest point, 12 miles from 12 or 20, something like that, miles from Greenland. And it's the northernmost part is 80 degrees north latitude, so it's 10 degrees from the North Pole. Arctic, ice, cold, very remote, very, the most remote place I have ever been. So 104 days, I'm 65 years old, going as hard as you can every day. We average 15 miles a day. That's half a marathon a day, every day for 104 days. And that's not in tennis shorts, tennis shoes and shorts. That's hauling all our gear, dragging our kayaks, sometimes 150 pound loads and stuff like that. Completed the expedition and my body shut down, turned off. I was medevac to Ottawa. I was so sick that when we were in the medevac Learjet, the flight nurse called in my medical stats, statistics to the 
trauma surgeon in Ottawa General Hospital, and he called the tower at Ottawa International Airport and held all planes, passenger jets, everything, people flying in from Japan for us to land, priority landing to get me to the hospital on time. So I didn't die, but I pushed it too far. I pushed it one step too far, right on the edge, and I wasn't killed by a polar bear. I didn't tip over. I didn't make any big mistakes. I just ran my body down to zero. And then I retired. Now, if I had been a little smarter, I would have retired a little earlier. But I didn't. And then, and then I retired. Everybody chooses when they're done. But yeah, you, you peak at, um, whatever, 30, let's say, whatever, I don't know, you can argue 25 to 35, and then you start going down, but you have a lot of knowledge and a lot of skill sets, so you can keep going. But I kept going a little too far, but that was okay, I didn't die, and now I'm really happy not pushing it. Did you see it coming? How was your internal awareness of where your body was at as you were in that, say, final week, final 10 10 days leading up to that? Oh, yeah, I knew I was done. I knew I was done. We had a couple of scary times just before the end. And the day before we finished, 103 days, we were within sight of our destination. I went, I can't go any farther. I just can't go any farther. So we had done, out of 1,500 miles, we had done 1,493. And I just went, I don't have the next seven miles. And then I went to sleep and I talked to my partner, Eric Boomer, and he said, well, you got to, we got to do this, you know. (laughs) And I got in my boat and then I got this burst of energy, paddled the last seven miles, came in got a shower, ate a meal, and collapsed. I couldn't stand up. I was lying on the floor. So it was a little bit too here by your chinny-chin-chin. Not going to do that again. (laughs) I do want to talk at some point about exploring the the limits of what one is is capable of, but I want to sit on, on risk for a little bit more. Is there any examples where you, maybe aside from that, where you assessed the risk and afterwards realized you took a lot higher risk than you initially thought, or situations where you decided to not take a risk and it paid off. I'm, I'm curious just to learn a little bit more about how you discern risk in some of those situations across your career. Every Every adventurer turns back sometimes, every single one. That's 100%. You are deciding to go to the outer limits of what human beings can do. And that's a decision from the beginning. You're a professional athlete. You're going to do a first ascent. That means nobody else has done that or first whatever. And to succeed, you have to have reasonable weather. You plan on it for reasonable weather. You can't plan that you're going to have the best weather ever. But if all of a sudden you get the worst weather ever, you got to turn back because it's not going to work. And it happens to everybody. Um, we, we were on a two-pronged team. This was a long time ago. Mount Robson in northern Canada is the highest mountain in the Canadian Rocks, Rockies. 
And at that point, the Emperor Face and Mount Robson had never been climbed under any conditions, and the North Face had never been climbed in the winter. And we decided uh, we had two teams, an A team and a B team. I was on the B team, and we were going to do the North Face, and the A team was going to do the Emperor Face. And we got up there, and there was good snow conditions and stable snow and everything. Then we had a big snowstorm, and avalanches are coming down, and it's snowing and wind and avalanches. And you're not going to go up on the North Face in that kind of condition. You're going to be dead for sure. So you smile and turn around and go back. And I have a 100 of those examples. But, yeah, you try to evaluate your risk before you go. You do your research, and you look at your own abilities. I can't think of any time where I bit off something that I couldn't chew if the conditions were good. But when conditions turn against you, and I have gone too far. The first time I tried to paddle a kayak around Cape Horn, I went out on a stormy day, and I shouldn't have. It was a bad move. It was stupid. And I got hit in the head real hard by a big storm and um, washed into the surf and landed on a rock and my kayak broke in two and suddenly I was swimming in the Antarctic Ocean, dislocated my shoulder, I was alone. I have one shoulder dislocated, kayak broken in two on a barely inhabited island far from civilization, swimming around with one arm. And that was because it was I made a, a really stupid decision. So everything happens. You make good decisions, bad decisions, stupid decisions. You make it, you don't make it. That's part of being an expedition person. There's another quote that, that I want to read about your Japan to Alaska expedition at the, the point where you got washed out in the sea storm. In fact, I think it goes straight to this. And the quote is, washed out to sea in a storm, unable to return to shore, spent the night battling waves, forced to stay awake, trying not to capsize, having waves crash over your head. We didn't speak about it at the time because you never speak about these things in the heat of action. But I wondered if we would survive the night. Something I think about is that in many ways, one of the, the, the lessons or wisdom that is gained from a life of adventuring is that by having a fairly close relationship with death, it teaches you to really live life to the fullest. People, I've been thinking about this. People talk about expeditioning as being a transcendent experience. And that assumes that our normal, comfortable life is normal. I think of it as the other way, that our normal, comfortable life is a distorted concept of life and being out there in nature, in nature's danger all the time, is our normal paleolithic, who we are, who are, it, that's in our DNA. So I was in Kenya, and I was in this village, and I was on this lion tracking thing, and this lion ate one of the village cows, and I was asked to go out and track this lion. Okay. So as I'm going off to track this lion, somebody says, well, wait a minute, you need a weapon in case things go south on you. And they hand me a wooden club, a rungu, and it's a nice stick with kind of knot on the end. It's got a good balance. It's about you know, this long. 
And it's got a nice balance, but it's a wooden club and not a rifle or a machete even. And the guy I was tracking with was so self-confident that he had no weapon at all, not even a club. And we're walking out and we get on the tracks of the lion and, oh, man, we're we're real close to this lion. These are very fresh tracks. And same thing as with the GPS. First, I'm annoyed. Why didn't they give me a machete? Why don't why didn't somebody have a gun? You know, if this lion, what are we supposed to do when we find this lion? Are we supposed to tell it it's a bad lion? It's not supposed to eat the cow. Please don't do that again. I mean, what's going on here? And then, like with the GPS, it's like I look at the tracker, the man I was with, Deepa, and he's like, this is normal. This is what we do. We're tracking this lion. We're somehow going to converse to this lion that it's a bad lion and it should go eat zebras and not cows. We're going to communicate that. And then I realize, again, just like the GPS thing, it brings you to a state of heightened awareness and the paleolithic human position that we've lived in all this time. It's not transcending to another world. It's remembering who we are. And then once you remember who you are, fear and death become fear and death. And nature is nature, and we're part of nature. And if nature decides to eat me today, well, that's not what I wanted to have happen, but that's what's going to happen. And then once you reach that state, and then like with the waves, you're in this state of hyper-awareness, this state that we used to be in all the time, that it's like a dog wanting to go for a walk. We've been so removed from our DNA that when we're walking through the savannah and there's a lion in the bushes, we think that's abnormal. No, it's very normal. Accept it. Embrace it. And that's what expeditioning is all about. You're preaching to the choir here. However, that is not still the conventional the conventional belief in society. Have you ever had to contend with maybe family members or loved ones that would argue going on expeditions is selfish? <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. And uh, if you accuse me of being abnormal, I plead guilty. <laughs> Something that I, I think about a lot is what does it look like to exist in, in two worlds. I, I had someone on recently who spoke about just how powerful it is to to forage their own food and make their own clothes out of hides and things. And I can absolutely see how that is an incredibly connected way to live, but also not accessible to most people. And And so I think about what does it look like to be able to be deeply connected to nature while also having a job that involves you to stare at screens most of the day. What does it look like to be deeply connected to the the food that grows uh, around you or the, the watershed you're in while also still existing in the modern world? I'm not sure. Have you had to do that dance at all or, or are you been more or less committed to the, the wildlife? Everybody does that dance. Yeah, I fly around on airplanes, and when I'm flying on an airplane, I'm really happy that there's an engineer calculating the strengths of rivets and everything so that wings didn't fall off the airplane. I own computers, and we live in a van with a motor and four wheels and rubber tires and all that. So we all 
I don't know anybody who has gone totally wild and living in uh, living in the woods, making a log cabin and having a garden and hunting with a bow and arrow and all that. So, yeah, we all play the game. And I have a computer. I'm talking to you on a computer, right? We all play the game and really should not be critical of somebody else's choice of where on this talk about one of my books, The Luxury Ladder. How many steps up the luxury ladder do you want to climb? And we're all on the luxury ladder at some level. But at the same time, nature, think about the dog again. Dogs like to go for walks. People inherently, there's a peace in nature. There's an opening up of your consciousness in nature. And I was just talking with somebody the other day. Apparently, getting cold is good for you. It stimulates your immune system. So if you live in a controlled climate environment in a house with a thermostat and you never get cold, you actually have a weaker immune system than if you go out and you get cold. Nature gives you mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical strength. And somehow, it it seems to me, for most of us, if we allow ourselves more time in nature and sticking it out there just a little bit every now and then, getting a little bit scared, is, is a really healthy way to go. Let me read another piece that resonated about specifically finding limits or, or finding that, that state of transcendence, adventuring in nature. I think this was referring to maybe the Alasmere expedition where you, you had to navigate a bunch of uh, ice flows that were potentially going to crush the, the kayak. But anyway, the piece that I highlighted was to enter into the blissful state that is beyond willpower, where you are just existing, waiting or charging forth as conditions allow, in the flow where the pain dissipates, where reality dissipates, but it doesn't, it just changes. And if we, in, if indeed there is a place beyond willpower where pain stops, the glory is that the secret valley is guarded by pain itself. The gnarly old trickster troll under bridge with a wry smile, a peaked rumpled hat, dirty underwear and rotten teeth. So you must endure or cross over or worm your way through to suffer through pain before you no longer need to endure anymore because the pain evaporates into something we don't have a word for in the English language. Perhaps because it's not a sufficiently significant part of our heritage. I think that that level of transcendence on the other side of severe pain is incredibly powerful in the times that I've been able to access it, it it has felt paleolithic. It felt like I've tuned into a another mode of being. The paleolithic us. The paleolithic us. Like we've been talking about this whole hour, the all the effort we do to eliminate both pain and discomfort takes away something else. We lose something. You might say, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> but again, every form of refuge has its price. If we take away discomfort, if we take away uncertainty, if we take away cold, if we take away fatigue, we lose part of ourselves. 
you might want to make that choice, and that's fine. But you're going to lose part of yourself. You don't get something for nothing. And there's a glorious place to go out on your mountain bike and get tired, climbing and get tired, going for a walk, being cold, all of that. And in an environment, nature is not, when nature is cold, it's not angry at you. There's no confrontation. It's cold. It's raining. You're wet. You went out on a hike in the northern Rockies in July and you forgot your, you know, oh, it's July. It's a beautiful day. I didn't bring a hat. And then it snows on you. Nature isn't mad at you. It's not getting revenge. It's just being nature. And then you get cold and you're just being cold. Why were you cold? Because you were stupid. Okay. And then it puts you into your paleolithic self. If you allow yourself to go there, you can stay grumpy all day if you choose. But if you choose not to stay grumpy all day, then you will take you to an altered state of normal Paleolithic consciousness. And my argument is that that's a wonderful place to be. I agree. But also elusive to access. You, How often do you find yourself not able to breach through the pain to the transcendence on the other side. We all get grumpy. Everybody gets grumpy, and you try not to. Have I ever been grumpy in my entire life? Oh, yeah. Have you ever been grumpy in your entire life? Oh, yeah. It sounds like a key part of what I'm hearing, how you are able to get to that state is equanimity on not judging the sensation that you're feeling. Yeah, just... Eastern teachers, Buddhist teachers talk about this all the time, just being in the present. And most of us, because we're not Buddha or Jesus, we get out of the present. Something happens and we get grumpy either out loud or internally. We start feeling grumpy, annoyed. This isn't good. I'm tired. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I wish I were not tired and cold and hungry. And then what the Buddhist teachers tell us is, Laugh at yourself. Ho, 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 John, you're being so foolish. Accept that grumpiness and let it go on. Let it go through. Don't get mad at yourself because that just adds insult to injury. Just let it go through, let it pass, and then accept the state that we were trying to be grumpy about. Exploring kind of the limits of the the mind and body and what the mind is capable of, I'd love for you to share your experience with with Moulinot, if I'm pronouncing their, their name correctly. Well, we back up. Let's go back to the beginning of this podcast. I grew up in suburban Connecticut. I went to high school with George W. Bush. I went to Ivy League school. I got a PhD in chemistry, a very... Um... And so, can I just stop you there? What was, what was George W. Bush like? Well, he was one of the rich kids, and I was one of the scholarship kids. I didn't have much to do with them. It was a very, it was a private school, a boarding school, a very hierarchical society. So I knew, I knew who he was and he was into the hierarchy and I was out of the hierarchy. We didn't have anything to do with each other. So anyway, Misha, my Russian partner and I were paddling a two year project from Japan to Alaska up the east coast of Asia, the Kamchatka Peninsula and into northeast siberia and across to alaska two-year trip and we're paddling along the coast and this was the second year 
and we're late. What does late mean? Late means that if we don't keep the miles going, winter's going to come and the ocean is going to freeze up and we're not going to get to Alaska and something very uncomfortable is going to happen to us. So we're going past this village and it's two o'clock in the afternoon and we say, oh, let's go into the village and take an early day and rest up and meet the people, have a good meal. We go, no, we got to keep going. So we're paddling along, and all of a sudden, this storm comes out of nowhere. There were no lenticular clouds in the sky, no indication on my uh, altimeter watch that there was a low-pressure system, and the wind started to blow. When the rain starts to fall, And the wind picks the waves up and blows it into the rain. And the wind picks the rain up and blows it into the waves. And then you can't see where the ocean ends and the air begins or the air ends and the ocean begins. You know, it's a big storm. So we say, well, let's go to town after all. And we paddle in through the surf. Get out of our kayaks. I was 50 or something at that time. And kind of creaky. We've been in the boat 10, 8, 10 hours or something like that. This woman walks up. She's a Koryak woman, and she speaks in English, a language I wasn't used to having people speak to me in English. And she knows our names. And she says, John, Misha, it's good to see you. We were expecting you. The grandmother created this storm to bring you to our village. She wants to talk to you. Boom, 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 boom. What do I think? Well... I think I'm not in a position to be cynical or critical of what's going on. There's a storm out there. There's a warm house in there. I can smell bread baking in the oven. I'm cold. I said, that's great. We'd love to see the grandmother. And the grandmother was 96-year-old woman, Mulanada, a healer, a shaman, born during the reign of Tsar Nicholas II, saw her father fight the the Red Army, the Soviets, the Bolsheviks in the Great Revolution lived through the entire rise and fall of the Soviet Empire. And that initiated five years I spent off and on in Siberia with Mulanov. And some spectacular things happened. She healed my broken pelvis by having me stand naked on one leg and one arm stretched out in front of me and the other arm behind my back naked and fly to the other world and perch on a branch with Kutcha the raven. And Kutcha flew to the woman who lives on top of the highest mountain and the woman on the highest mountain healed me. And that launched a whole other sequence. What happened? Who do I think? How do I initiate this? And Mulanat, sent me and Misha out on the tundra in the spring, but early spring, cold, as we're talking Siberian cold. So we're talking cold. And she sent us out to talk to Kutcha. So this old woman sends me out and says, go walk on the tundra, go for a walkabout and find Kutcha the spirit raven, and thank him. If you want to thank somebody, don't thank me. I didn't do anything. I just talked to Kutcha. Kutcha's the one that, that flew to the woman who lives on top of the highest mountain. So it involved all kinds of things. It involved magic mushroom, psychedelic Amanita journeys. It involved physical journeys. It involved being cold. It involved looking for Kutcha across the tundra. It involved five years of my life. And during that time, 
All of my big-name sponsors dropped me like a hot potato. They didn't want anything to do with me anymore. You're not doing the next cutting-edge physical thing, and you're off with the shaman woman. We don't want to talk to you. I lost all my sponsors. I spent five years, and she just introduced me to this paleolithic world of nature this that the dream world and the real world are one that the raven is our spokesperson that finding the raven we have to go out on the tundra we have to be cold we have to be tired we have to get frostbitten it's what we've been talking about and this was the purpose of the journey because nature will be cold. Nature will make you frostbitten. You will get hungry. This isn't an accident that might be happened. And in the hunger and in the cold and in everything, then Kutka will come to you. And Kutka doesn't have to be a real raven. The spirit of Kutka will come to you if you do this, if you accept nature in this way. And that just changed my whole life. I'd never become the same again because I know where to find this wonderful place. And on the Amanita mushroom, I could not travel into the other world. I was incapable of it. But as Oleg the hunter said, he said, you're a lousy traveler in the spirit world, but you're a really good traveler in the real world. So if you want to find the spirit world, you will find it in the real world. And if I have any message today, it's that if you want to find the spirit world, you will find it in the real world. That's beautiful. I think a lot of listeners carry a a balance between skepticism and, and a deep connection to the outdoors, or they know the outdoors is transformative, makes them feel better, but it could feel like a stretch to open their senses to kind of a a dream type world. How do you practice connection with nature when you go, go out? How do you tap into that transformative potential and power when you go out into the forest today? I don't do anything special. I'm going to go ride my bike today. My wife and I are living in our van in the desert. And outside of this one week in this $5 million house, we will be camping in the desert for six months. Yeah, we go to town and we buy groceries and ice. We're not um, hunting with a stick and a bow and arrow. But today, as soon as we finish here, I'm going to get in my car and turn on the internal combustion engine and drive up and get on my bike. And then it's just me and the bike, the feel of the bike. Yes, the bike is a mechanical thing. I know that. But just the feeling of gravity, playing with gravity, being out in nature. And I'm not going to lie and tell you that I'm going on a big vision quest, but After six months in the desert, I'm going to be down here till May. Every little cactus, every little day, every little turn on your mountain bike is something that puts you into this flow, into this world that spoke speaks to me about. I took some psychedelics recently, and uh, there was, I read this book by uh, Michael Powell, I think, Powell, Powell, something. 
And he said, you're supposed to take these psychedelics and go inside and search your inner beauty. So I went up on this ridge on this mountain in the, in Montana. I took, it was summertime. I took off all my clothes. I ate the psychedelics. Boom. And I started coming on and I said, okay, now I got to go inside and see the beauty inside. And I went inside and I say, Oh man, there's nothing in here that's more pretty than out there. I'm out of here. I'm going to get up and I'm going to sit by a little waterfall. The waters. There's a snow field and the water is melting off the snow and coming down and the wildflowers are out in the high alpine. I said, this is way prettier than anything inside. So I'm out of here. I'm in nature. And when I go ride my bike today, I'm not going to go inside and meditate. I'm just going to ride my bike and uh, it's going to be really beautiful. The sun is shining. There'll be rocks and beautiful Moab, everything and very simple. No tricks, no gimmicks. And I think beauty of an experience like that is in many ways, it allows the self to merge into the natural environment. Yes, that allows one to appreciate the beauty of it, but in many ways, it also creates a different form to perceive the self. I don't want to hold you from, from writing too much longer, but I'm curious is on the topic of transformational wisdom that comes from the outdoors and adventure, is there anything else that you want to share that you feel hasn't been said? No, no, it's just, um, there's nothing I can say that you won't read in what any of the Buddhist teachers or that you won't read in, um, in what the shamans, the, the, the wise people, the elders of, Native Americans or indigenous people anywhere. I, I will, I guess what doesn't really matter, but I will um, make a little pitch for my books that uh, what we've been talking here is written up in several of my books, The Raven's Gift, Crocodiles and Ice in the Wake of the Jomen, uh, Tracking Lions, Myth and Wilderness, and Samburu. So if you want to proceed that, Read my book, send me an email, john at johnturk.net, and I will answer you. And have a great day and go for a walk and, and enjoy the sunshine or the snowstorm or whatever's going on out there. <laughs> great. I can absolutely advocate for those books as well. Will there be any articles in Mountain Life coming out by you in the next the seasons? I have. I write a monthly uh, column for Mountain Life Coast out of Squamish, uh, Vancouver, Whistler area. And um, I have a column every issue in Mountain Life. The newest one, I don't know if it's out yet or will be out soon. I should look it up someday. But um, it tracks the story of my life through the poet songs of this 60s era, Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan and so on. So it talks about me being young and rebelling and becoming a bit of a bandit and ending up in jail. And then I go to the Bob Dylan or Jimi Hendrix, uh, but written by Bob Dylan, but sung beautifully by Jimi. There must be some way out of here, said the Joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't find no relief. And that was the song that I sang to myself while I was in prison, you know. And then the relief, the the confusion is the 
world we live in today, which is way confusing. I mean, read the paper. It's chaotic. There must be some relief. And that is nature and then going into nature. And that's the article that's coming out or just out in the winter issue. Amazing. Looking forward to reading that. I hope I can still find a copy when I get it back to, to British Columbia. Uh, if not, it's online. Look it up in Mountain Life, Mountain Life Coast. You'll find it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, John. I'll, I'll include links to your, your website and, and, and books and, and the show notes. And Okay, thanks, Tim. Hope we will meet up on the trail somewhere. Yeah, one day. Thanks for listening to Mountain Whispers. Like I say, there is an abundance of great stuff out there and our attention spans aren't getting any longer, so it means a lot that you chose this. Take a look at the show notes. Definitely follow more of John's work. Really enjoy all his books and just in general his perspective. Check out his website too. And I will see you when I see you. I would like to record more of these. I know I said that last time and the last time I recorded was like five months ago. But we'll get there. Take care. Bye.